0: Welcome to the Deal-Making Demystified podcast by Farragut Square Group, a show where healthcare leaders share leadership lessons. Today, we're extremely proud to feature Jeffrey Schillinger. Over 20 years ago, Mr. Schillinger co-founded ED Care, which was an emergency medicine physician practice management company and served as its chief executive officer. As a result of a recap, by BPOC in 2008, ED Care merged with Sterling Healthcare to create hospital physician partners. Mr. Schillinger led the growth of this entity into one of the largest privately held emergency medicine physician practice management companies in the country, which was subsequently sold to Schumacher Group, an Onyx Corporation portfolio company. One year later, he founded DermCare in 2016. Today, DermCare manages approximately 70 dermatology clinics in three states and is one of the fastest growing platform companies in the country in this specialty. Mr. Schillinger graduated from the State University of New York at Albany, a place I hold very dear to my heart as it also happens to be my alma mater. And this is actually how we pick our guests. (laughs) He has a degree in economics and business, and is a certified public accountant. He also hails from my hometown of Queens, New York, way before it was hip. So I always assess Jeffrey's strong emotional intelligence and his ability to truly connect um, two people to this Queens upbringing. And so, Jeffrey, thank you again for joining us. Tell me, what initially led you down to your entrepreneurial path? Let's focus as a starting point on the initial set of companies, not on dermatology.
1: So I've always been uh, a student of business, if you will, not just accounting, which is what I was, you know, t- took my studies in as a, as a kid, young man. Um, and I knew some point that I owned my own business. One day, literally um, in 1992, I got a phone call from my brother who was living in South Florida. And I was up here in the uh, metropolitan area, New York. And um, he had started an ER management company. And when he got his third contract, he was just overwhelmed trying to run the business and be a do- full-time doctor, which is what he really loved. I mean, we were, you know, we were young and he was just out of his residency and he he literally wanted to save lives. So um, he asked me to save his life because he couldn't he couldn't do what he was doing. And so I literally just packed up and left. I didn't even know if he could pay me. Uh, but I asked him one question, and that was, if I do this, um, will you let me build this into a real business, not just, you know, your small little practice administrative type role? Because I'm not interested in that at all. And he said, do whatever you got to do. Just get down here, <laughs> literally. And that's what we did. And we started, uh, we built that little company, ECS Holdings, to um, 80, 88 or no, 92 ER contracts, predominantly rural.
0: Um, impressive for so many things, um, not least of which is being able to work with a close family relative. So let me, um, let me just interject. He,
1: he is my identical twin brother.
0: Um, should have him on the podcast alongside you uh, get, get, get some leadership lessons for um, how to work with your identical twin brother. Um, in terms of the next iteration of, um, your practice management background, from founding the predecessor company to hospital physician partners and selling it to Schumacher Group, you obviously grew it to another startup to um, the country's largest privately held um, emergency medicine physician, physician practice management company. And um, we both know that starting over and scaling is extremely hard work, and, and launches are never without their struggles. Tell me, where did you get the drive to persevere when the road got tough? And what made you obsess about moving the company forward?
1: So I think the, two, two things come to mind with that question. Number one is your team. You have to have a great team to do this. Uh, and I've been very fortunate um, at HPP and actually where I am today to have great CFOs who really lift that entire burden for me. I'm a big believer in my management style is what I refer to as DND, delegate and disappear. Hire the right people to do their job and leave them alone, let them do their job. And I've been really lucky uh, or fortunate that I've hired some amazingly great people uh, who've allowed me to do that. So I can focus with the sales team on building the company and integrating the various things that we either buy or sold in in those earlier days, right? So, and as far as perseverance, I think the thing that gives you perseverance is vision. You sort of need to be able to look down the road. What do, what, do I want, what do I personally want to look like in two years, three years, five years? And then how does this company get me to my goals? And then sort of reverse engineer how you get there.
0: What about other critical partners, maybe outside your CFO or immediate leadership team, is there anyone you want to think about or give a, give a shout out to, perhaps a funding source, a critical employee, an advisor, your mother um, for raising two such um, uh, hardworking boys? Um, <laughs> tell, give us other keys of your success in those um, earlier um, companies.
1: So I'll, t- you know, it's funny, you know, you say a joke, to my mother, because everyone can thank their mother for whatever they've done in, in life a little bit, right? But, um, she told us early on when we started to work together that if we disagreed on things, first try not to punch each other, which we, we were pretty good about, not a hundred percent good, but we we're pretty good about it. Um, and two, if you disagree with, with your brother, he has to win every time. So just back down and let him win. And no, she wasn't kidding. She goes, he's the doctor. And your the product, if you will, is, is a service of medicine. Always let the medicine uh, prevail in the argument. And I use that, even though my brother and I are not partners today in this business. That is still um, the governing rule inside every company I've I've started in healthcare and managed.
0: Um, that is a very astute thought process. Um, actually, thank you for sharing that um, tidbit. I'm sure the audience. Um, thoroughly appreciates that um, material wisdom. In terms of more wisdom, um, what are the three things that um, you wish you had known when starting company number one or company number two um, that had you known it now, it would have propelled that growth even bigger or faster?
1: So... You know, when you start a company, you, you are literally chief cook and bottle washer, right? We all know that expression. You're doing everything. I remember literally sending proposals uh, by FedEx and, you know, typing the letters and the proposals and then going to FedEx and sending them out, right? Um, so we've all done that kind of stuff. And the, I wouldn't trade that for anything because that is sort of the, this is not where I'm going to stay and I'm going to drive myself or propel myself forward from here. But if I had to think what what I would do differently is I would dream bigger. And I tell that to everybody, dream bigger. Even though you think it's obnoxious, go for the stars. Even if you think what you're thinking is somewhat absurd, um, you will fare better the bigger you dream.
0: And what are the tools do you think the average hard-charging person needs in their toolkit to give them the confidence to dream bigger?
1: So a couple of things. So I, I had the, you know, the unique advantage of being trained as a CPA, right? So you have to know your numbers. You have to know your cash position at all times. And if what you're about to do, you're going to run out of cash. You should know that before it actually happens. Um, and by the way, all small companies face that reality at some point, like, uh, how am I making payroll next Friday? Uh, but you have to get there. You have to figure that out, right? So I think um, when, you, when you think about where you're going and what you're going to do with your, with your company and what's challenging and all this stuff and what are the tools you need, the most important tool is how you speak to people, whether they're your employees and your colleagues, or they're your customers or potential customers. Um, You really have to be deferential. You can sit. Well, first of all, I never sit in a room and think I'm the smartest person in the room. I'm probably just the luckiest person in the room. And by the way, if there's, you know, I'm saying this is a joke, but if there's a doc, if there's three doctors in the room, they already know they're the three smartest people. So don't try and take that role from them. Let them have it. By the way, just let them have it. Right? So, Talk to them in a way that reminds them they're the smartest people, even if you don't really believe that, right? So I think how you speak to people is one of the most important things. When you leave a meeting, if you leave, especially if you leave a one-on-one meeting, what is the impression they got of you from the handshake, the sit down, and how you interacted with them? And it means a lot. It means a lot to people. Um, it's the difference. I believe difference between getting a sale and not getting a sale, right? You're competing. You're always competing with somebody for the business. How are you going to differentiate yourself? By the way, some people differentiate, themselves by being not so nice. And they're also remembered and they don't get the business, right? So which side of that equation do you want to be on? So I think it's really important how you talk to people in order to be successful in what you're doing.
0: Tell me about a time when you actually lost your cool, um, and how did you recover?
1: You really want to know? Yeah. So we'll just refer to this without getting too into it as an anti-Semitic moment. And I'm
0: acknowledging that I think both of us might be, um, might be Jewish. So yes, I'd exactly. love to hear it.
1: So, um, I was at a hospital and, um, with a salesperson trying to get an ER contract. This is in the early days of ECS. This is in rural Georgia, I believe. Um, no, I'm sorry, Alabama. And the CEO is ready to give us the contract. And he looked at me and looked at us and said, now, if I give you this contract, you're not going to send me any talent or name or name I said, no, just women. I got up, I cursed at him and we walked down. That was a pretty, and, and I was screaming on the way out the door, I might say. <laughs> like, I, I'd never, never encountered a situation like that in my life. So, yeah, I, my buttons get pushed. Absolutely. Everybody uh, can get pushed.
0: Um, thank you. That was um very powerful. So moving on from the emergency medicine time for Jeffrey and the sale to Schumacher, what motivated you um, and really want an authentic answer here because you were so successful um, for, for a very long period of time at that point. And so what continued um, you to create um, when many illustrious folks that had had such successful multiple exits would have steadfastly chosen to dial it down?
1: Um, so you're referring to, to the post post HPP sale to Schumacher, correct?
0: Correct, and 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 so it, it, you switching um, your specialties um, pretty yep. radical. Um, still, yep. obviously, provider space, but um, you know, radical pivot. So, um, what created that need in you to keep going and continuing to create and and switching funding partners? Obviously, who you get into bed with is very important. And so, um, what gave you that impetus to uh, forge ahead?
1: So, right after we sold in 2015, I was contractually obligated to stay for um, for a full year, right, and and lead or assist with the integration of two companies, both large, uh, pri- had been private, you know, just privately owned, hospital um, based contract management companies, right. So when that time came to an end, um, I had to decide whether I was going to stay or not. I spoke with the CEO, the uh, CEO of Schumacher, and it was time for me to leave. And so we, and still friends, still you know on very very good terms. Um, I contemplated retiring, and after about a week, I'm like, no way, this is just not for me. Like, this is my hobby. I love what I do. Right. So, not doing it and saying I'm retired just. Not only terrified me because I'm a firm believer that um, when one of one of my business mentors said to me many years ago, while I was an accountant, actually, um, when you retire, the unimportant can easily become important because nothing else is going on in your life or in your business life or in your day or in your mind, like and. Um, at that time and today, I'm terrified of that. And so even, even six years later, seven years later, I'm still in that same space. I have no intention of retiring. And everyone who knows me has stopped asking.
0: Um, thank you for sharing um, that authentic self. Talk to us about um, dermatology. Why dermatology? What was your reasoning for co-founding Derm care, and how did you choose Hildred as your capital partner?
1: Okay, so Hildred didn't come in until three years, almost three years after we launched the company, right? So, um, as I exited from um, HPP Schumacher, right, um, I was trying to figure out what's, what what I'm going to do. First, I started with nothing. Um, and, you know, honestly, just felt sort of irrelevant very quickly. And I just wanted to get back in the game, as they say. So I started making some calls to some private equity firms because I know a bunch of people in private equity. Obviously, I had private equity backed business before before that time. And just listen to what was what are they interested in? Because that's my path. Right. Whatever I build, um, I'm going to want to flip to them and then build further with them. Um, and, uh, BPOC had been, uh, our sponsor of private equity partners at HPP and I went to them first and we talked about starting something right away. They would fund and we'd start looking at things. Um, and I looked at a few different specialties, but hottest in 2016 was dermatology. And so I have no great reason to tell you why I went into dermatology other than honestly feeling it was marketable back to private equity at the appropriate time. That's the real reason. So I sort of, again, sort of look like as I'm building, what's the exit gonna look like in three to five years or the Mm -hmm. next iteration? And that's how I chose the business. We looked at, I I looked at behavioral, I looked at ophthalmology, I looked at Derm uh, and Derm just won the day.
0: Tell us about your early years there. Um, What was your focus area in 2016, 2017? And did things fall into plan in those earlier years um, or not? Um, And so talk to us about that. And then Hildred entering the picture, please. Okay,
1: sure. So first thing I did in 2016, well, after I left previous employer, I, um, and decided to go into dermatology. I looked at a few different opportunities, um, all of which I thought were incredibly overpriced for the size that they were. And so I decided I'm going to start from scratch, just like I always have. Um, My friends at BPOC offered to fund it, and I said, no, we'll start from scratch. I'll fund it. So um, first thing I did was pick up the phone and call my CFO. Hey, where are you at? What's going on? He goes, I'm about to sign a contract uh, to be the CFO of private equity back firm. I literally have the contract. I said, put that pen down and meet me for lunch tomorrow. And he did. And he was the first person I called. And for the first part, first phase of this business, we decided we're going to do this differently because you learn as you go. We're not going to start the business and then start building the backbone, the infrastructure. We're going to build the infrastructure first. So, and by we, I mean he, um, and he was great at it and still is great at it. Um, so he started with um, an IT partner, telling them how we want a data warehouse built, what's going to come into the data warehouse, what's important to us, what are the KPIs we're going to want to see built, who's going to be our accounting and enterprise level reporting system, all the kind of stuff you need. That's the backbone. So we did that first. Then, uh, I had met a dermatologist who had several practices, um, through an, another private equity contact of mine, Gemini investors out of Boston, out of Newton, Massachusetts, actually. And, uh, they had been looking at purchasing it and then they decided not to, but they had asked me to meet with that doctor as part of their diligence because they knew me well. And my office was one block, one traffic light away from this, from this guy's office. So he and I went for dinner. He is, I consider him the co-founder of this business with Chris and myself. Chris is my CFO. Um, and he said, we, I would love to start something from the ground floor. And my question to him was, do you have any friends? He said, I have lots of friends. I said, stop calling your friends. So literally from October, November of 2016, straight through when we launched the company in July, I probably met with 15 or 20 different dermatology practices. We selected five, including Dr. Eduardo Weiss, that's the gentleman I referred to. Um, and we launched the company actively on July, right around July 3rd or July 5th, but it's July 4th holiday, which um, Chris, and by then Mark Grad had joined me as my uh, executive vice president. So we used to joke and say Mark's job was, he was um, he was vice president of E minus F, everything minus finance. Chris had finance, Mark had everything else. Um, and those two guys really built and ran the company for me so I could grow it. Um, and that's how we started the company. So again, comes back to the team. I had a great team. They allowed me to do what I could do. Um, so I didn't have to worry about what they were doing.
0: And speaking of fostering a great team and helping them to propel forward, You've spoken previously about the importance of culture. It's an often overused word that lacks meaning at times. Um, Why, Jeffrey, do you feel that culture is absolutely critical? Um, And and tell us about the type of culture that you've painstakingly built at DermCare.
1: So the culture, at DermCare matches the culture we built at HPP, right? Uh, my brother used to refer to it as, you're going to love this. My brother referred to it as "Mishbucha." You have to build a family, right? And he would actually tell people that's our culture. And I think it really emanates from who you are, right? So there are companies or are cultures where you're fist pounding and yelling at people and they leave the conference room terrified. And they take that same personality back to the people who report to them. And you have a culture of fear. Things get done, but not not cause it feels good to get them done. Our culture is different. So, you know, I learned a long time ago, as I said earlier, how you talk to people matters. Uh, if I'm, if someone says something to me that I'm not happy about, I just look at them. I don't say a word and they, go, and they go, got it. Okay. We're done. So I'm not saying anything to upset anybody. There's no need to. Um, I never go, I never assume somebody is not busy. So I never say, Hey, I need this today or I need this. When you have, I know you're busy, but when you have a second, I can really use your help on this. It's a big difference on how you talk to people. And it starts from the top. Culture is not what you see yourself as. Culture of a company is what others see you as. So I love my, one of my favorite things, you know, when I, I think when we spoke early, I told you, I always meet with a dermatologist personally, face-to-face, usually with their spouse as well for dinner before we start the diligence process or sign an LOI or anything like that. So we get to know each other. They should know who their partner's gonna be and I certainly wanna know who their partner's gonna be. And I've left those dinners once or twice and said, no, we're not gonna do this deal. I just didn't let that he spoke to his wife or, or she to him or something happened that we it just didn't quite click. So that culture is um how do people perceive you and your team? And one of my happiest things I hear is Once we're in diligence, we've signed an LOI and they're doing diligence, I invariably will call or Zoom with, you know, the physician in the middle of the process and go, how is my team treating you? Right. First, first response is, wow, thank you so much for calling. I can't believe you called just to ask that question. It's the only question I had. And and the answer is, your team is the nicest team I've ever worked with. I mean, this is difficult stuff. They're making me dig stuff up and all this stuff. And drive me crazy, but they are so polite, so kind and so helpful. And I'm like, that's the culture.
0: So do you think that sort of thought process and a partner experience is why so many successful practices over so many years have gravitated toward derm care versus folks that may have a somewhat different outlook on this?
1: So we are not typically the highest bidder in a process. In fact, as I sit here, I would tell you, if someone said, hey, congratulations, you bid more than anybody else, my first response would be, no, I didn't mean that. Um, (laughs) And try and get it lower. So we are very rarely the highest bidder, if ever, right? But um, something else has caused them to make a decision. And And I actually believe that comes from Two things. One, the meeting that they're going to have with us because they'll meet with all the other suitors as well. So the meeting we'll have with us will be different. I meet with 100% of them. We were a small company. I met with every one of them. We're a larger company today. I still meet with every one of them, right? Um, multiple times in that bidding process and in the diligence process. They, they need to get to know who we are. So I think they wind up, gravitating towards because we have maybe a little more personality involved. The CEO is involved. I think, you know, New York State used to have a a motto years ago about the New York State Lottery, and that was you have to be in it to win it. That is my sales philosophy. You have to be in it. You have to get on the plane and you got to go. Telephone doesn't work.
0: That is um, some very special sauce. So um, thank you, actually, for sharing it. Maybe segueing to integration, what elements of integration do you believe are particularly critical and how long did it take for you to hone in your integration playbook?
1: So it's iterative, right? So we're much better at it today than we were four years ago because we learn as you go. And, you know, when we started, we didn't really know much about dermatology or the personality of dermatologists if you will right so we we had to learn as as we were going so probably the most important front from a tactical perspective is get is getting the the new practice onto our electronic platform right so we go in pretty quick i mean obviously the first thing you do is you take over cash cuz it's now your cash, right? So you do that very quickly, literally on day one at closing. Uh, part of the documents they sign is our do- as our closing packages are all the banking forms to put us in charge of the bank accounts, right? So that's obvious stuff: taking over the the bills and moving over payroll. That all happens very quickly behind the scenes. It takes about ninety days for us to put them on our. Uh, IT backbone. So changing over their servers, changing over, uh, well, getting them on the cloud if they're on servers, changing their um, their bandwidth, their internet, getting a firewall, getting things secure takes about 90 days and then converting their billing in house to us and put everything on our EMR and everything sort of flows to us electronically. So 90 to 120 days, almost every practice is fully integrated.
0: Which is, um, really impressive because, um, a- as folks who oversee, advise, provide arms and legs for practices that are, um, coming in and integrating or selling, um, oftentimes we don't see enough integration, um, nor do we see enough compliance. And so there is less cohesion and attention to detail on the compliance front that then we feel is optimal, particularly in a company led by or capitalized by private equity. And so how important do you think establishing a living, breathing culture of compliances um, at Durham Care?
1: Well, so like I said, we start off, you know, a, one of the first things we do is convert over that that backbone because that, that's our biggest exposure, right? So we're buying all these I hate to use the expression, but mom and pop, right? You're buying standalone practices who literally, um, they're one step above a Tandy computer, right? And, and, and dial up. So they are very exposed to hacks. And we learn all this through the diligence phase, right? So that's really important to us, whether it's an IT diligence, we learn um, we'll do coding audits. And of course, we've used your firm Farragut to help us with these things. Uh, and it's very important because we'll find out where our exposure exposure is and attack those, create the order in which we're going to go after things. So if we buy if we're buying a practice and we think there's an issue with how, how the, uh, PAs are being billed relative, you know, to the physician supervision, we're going to attack that right away. Right. Uh, and we're gonna do it in a way that doesn't make them feel like they've done something criminal. Or that, or that they don't know what they're doing or whatever, we're going to make that adjustment and help them really quickly. But we learn that through our diligence partners like Farragut and quite frankly, our lawyers as well who do at McDermott who do deep dive diligence stuff for us. Stuff we don't have the expertise to. Do.
0: Thank you for that. And, and shifting over to the patient. Um, can you please talk about the advantages? your platform provides toward things like accessibility and or maybe generally talk about the patient experience um, under derm care versus potentially someplace else.
1: So ever since I've been in healthcare, which is now 30 years, our focus has always been the same. And that is the patient experience, right? So in emergency medicine, we used to say patients describe good healthcare in terms of speed, how long did I have to wait in the, in the waiting room before I got seen? And that's the difference between a good experience and a bad experience in an emergency department. They come to the ER and assume the doctor is competent, right? Um, but if they had to wait four hours or five hours, that's, you've already lost their confidence. In dermatology, or in or in a clinic setting, right, which is what we're in today, what I refer to as retail healthcare. Um, that patient experience is still really important. And what what we bring, and I th- frankly, I think all the platform companies, what we'll call our competitors will bring um, is more, first of all, more um, technology to make that experience better. So getting all the insurances verified upfront, make, give, giving patients the ability to make an appointment just on their phone, not having to call, not even having to go to the website website online on a computer, they could do it on their phone, literally with a touch you know, touch of their hand, right? So all of this now that may not matter to someone who's seventy five or eighty years old, but it does matter to someone who's forty years old or thirty years old, right? The, we're more and more digital. We want it in our hand. We want faster access. The other thing we've done is there's an acute shortage of of dermatologists in the country. And so the wait time in terms of how long it takes to get an appointment appointment can be very long, right? Um, in certain certain markets, it could be two months so you can get your first appointment. So what we've done in, in most of the practices we've partnered with is we've added providers, whether another physician, whether a PA, um, and just by building out that secondary schedule for that next provider, you've doubled the capacity of that, of those four walls, if you will, to see people. So you shorten the wait time for patients to come in to see a see a, you know, provider. And I think that's important for a patient experience. Well, and let me just add one more thing. The thing we do with all of our practices, we go to um we we survey a hundred percent of the patients on, you know, electronically. Um and we use a net promoter score um concept as we do it. And then we share that score with every office, every single week. And then at the end of the month, summarized, And then we give awards to the, to the best ones and the most improved. And we publicize this to the whole company. Everybody knows. Everybody knows who the very best are. They may not know who the very worst are, because we'll keep that a little more private, but we let them know who's the very best. And you know what? People are pretty competitive by nature. That works. They just improve on themselves by getting this information.
0: And, and do you find that that level of um, extreme trans, consistent extreme transparency has um, risen all ships or were there some ships or are there some ships that naturally um, get upset by this?
1: It has risen all ships. We have we have practices that we're getting that promoter scores in the, you know, we'll call them in the 70 percentile, whatever, that are now in the 90s, right? So it's just risen them up. So we, we had a low threshold at one point of 75. Now that's 85, right? So yes, there's ones below it, but the vast majority, you know, is above, now above 85. And, you know, there's, there are ones that were not at the bottom, but low that have a hundred percent scores consistently month after month now now that requires educating the office manager, sometimes making a change with the office manager uh, of that position. So, cause we want to make sure that that office manager understands how important it is to us that the patient be treated nicely, not just professionally, right? So they leave with a good experience. If you have an office manager who doesn't have that philosophy, then no one in the office will have that philosophy. None of the MAs will, not the front desk, you got to make sure this person understands. And we bonus the office managers based on them, their promoter scores. So we're not just talking about patient experience. We put our money where our mouth is for the patient experience. It's
0: all about the culture, right? It's all about it the culture.
1: It is because ultimately the culture will drive the profits. Profits do not drive culture, that's for sure.
0: And so just um, staying on the patient for um, another couple of minutes, Jeffrey, what services are you seeing patients um, excited about, demanding, staying with now versus um, several years back? And what services do you think will be increasingly important um, as the decade goes on?
1: Well, the majority of our business is clinical dermatology, right? So that's not... um, that's not something that's dictated by disease, not by demand of, I want this, I want that, right? But the other part of our business is cosmetic in nature, right? So whether it's, um, you know, you want Botox or something similar, or fillers or whatever it is, um, we have seen a dramatic increase um, in, Botox, Disport, all those kind of things over the last three years since we since we came out of COVID, right? Since we came out of that lockdown period, um, and sort of surprised to see it this much. And I've had conversations with the with the top echelon of both of those companies. I think they're just as surprised as as we are. Um, people, and maybe part of it is because of things like this. You're sitting, you know, uh, on a video screen and. You know, it just doesn't lie. It's up close and personal. So more and more people want to get rid of lines as they do that. And we see those products really taking off and continuing to take off.
0: So I think I'm going to skip over the macroeconomic question because the environment, um, and let's um, continue with our fingers crossed, seems to be, at least as we sit here in August of 2023, shifting. Uh, to the positive. And so um, maybe instead, Jeffrey, in in the um, couple of minutes we have left, um, I'd love to hear what advice you would give to the young Jeffrey and or really maybe more specifically folks starting out the build out of a physician practice management company today. Um, What do they really need to be thinking about? Um, Where do they need to be heading? Tell us.
1: So first, first advice I'd give to the younger me or to someone young starting out today is find a mentor, find someone who's done what you're looking to do, who who won't feel threatened by you because you're just starting out. Right. And buy them lunch and then buy them a lot of lunches after that and just listen, listen to what they did to how they built their platform or their or their structure around them. I was probably not in the not so much in derm care cuz I was already older but you know certainly when I started 30 years ago um much less patient um and probably much less fun I will I will admit that the culture in our company came from my brother not from me and I and I, then I drank all the Kool-Aid right so it really started with him and it flowed to me um and so start out with that don't don't be so frantic starting a business requires a certain amount of fanaticism, right? You have to be fanatic about your business. uh, And that costs us things. It costs us sleep. It costs us relationships. Hard to have a lot of close friends when you're working all the time. And that's what it takes to start a business. You have to be somewhat fanatic about it, right? Try to be a little less fanatic and do a little more balance. You know, I joke with my daughter. My daughter's a lawyer and she's like, you know, I'm, I don't want to grow. I don't want to be like you. And she's not saying this in a disrespectful way at all, at all. We have great conversations because I want, I want a real work-life balance. And I said, I had a perfect work-life balance, you know? So uh, she goes, what do you mean? I said, I worked. So you had a life. That's my balance. I would advise people I actually, we actually had that conversation last year. Uh, I would advise people today to find a little more balance, be a little well round, a little more rounded and seek advice from others, right? So the the more you learn from someone else, the faster you'll grow your business. So you won't have to make the mistakes that you are bound to make if you don't have someone guiding you.
0: You're a very smart man, Jeffrey. Um, I love the um, authentic I'll go self. With, I'll go with a little lucky. Um, I guess maybe as a closing, um, ask if you could do it again in this, um, for your last current iteration, would you have picked the Durham specialty again? Um, if so, why? And um, alongside that, talk to us about industry trends within Durham that you are, particularly excited about?
1: So the answer is yes and no, just like it would be for anything else, right? So here's, here's, here's what I learned about dermatologists along the way. They are, as physicians go, uh, incredibly nice and mostly patient people. They have a lifestyle in their practice that's different from most medicine. Right. They get to leave early and they're not on call or they get to leave. I don't mean early. They leave five o'clock or whatever, but they're not on call. Uh, very rarely are they getting phone calls at night that something they did is bleeding, but it happens from time to time, but not, not, not life threatening stuff, uh, or over the weekends. So I think that sort of attracts a very calm person. Um, and they tend, tend to be, I think, very kind to people, uh, and they're very entrepreneurial, at least the ones um, who are 50 years and older. The younger ones, 40 years and younger, um, and the, in between that sort of 50-50, really don't want to start their own practices because I think, you know, um, healthcare law and all the things they have to balance and juggle makes it really unappetizing for young physicians to want to hang a shingle and go through everything and run the risks of inadvertently breaking some rule or law um, and they they may not be able, they may not know that a resource like Farragut exists to help you navigate some of that stuff. Right? So I think that scares, I would think that really scares them away. So would I do dermatology again? Um, yeah. I've made some great friends along the way. They're nice people. They're um, like every other doctor sometimes can be very difficult uh, in, in, Doctors are a little bit of know-it-alls and, you know, everyone knows that. I'm not saying that in a mean way at all because uh, there are some guys in my business, in our practice, who I would tell you, I love these guys. They're really great people and women too. They're just fabulous people. Um, and my wife and I go out for dinner with them. We'll socialize with them. They're really nice people. So yeah, it's, I would do Derm again. That doesn't mean I wouldn't do something else, right? So I, I don't exclude, I just don't have the experience with with others, but yeah, I'm not married to derm because I'm not a dermatologist, but.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for that honesty. It's very obvious to me, knowing Chris, your CFO, and, and, and many of those around you, why they continue to gravitate um, toward whatever shingle you've hung up. And so mm-hmm. this was really, really lovely to get um, so many pearls of wisdom from someone as experienced as you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. I, I appreciate inviting me to the to the podcast.